when they want to sit. Uh, so if you only sit then, then you only get to know the mind that wants to sit. So in some monastic situations, it's regulated to the point where if you are not present, a monk will come and get you, and sometimes a few of them to kind of drag you back to the cushion. <laughs> Seriously. Okay. Now, that's, there's a more, uh, another way, and that has limits, as you can imagine. The other way is, to, is a more independent way where people learn how to guide their own practice and know what's good for them. So that sometimes they'll skip sittings, sometimes they'll skip walkings, because there's momentum happening in the particular form, and so you follow through on it. I favor that, by and large. But we, we do both at, at our centers. Yeah. Okay, you haven't... It seemed like most of you are content, or you're just... Uh, the weather is just... You're all soggy. And <laughs> How about if we make it roughly half-hour sittings, half-hour walkings? Because that seems to be working out fairly well. Maybe not so much for old-timers. But I think it's good for most of us. So it'll be roughly half hour, but sometimes the questions goes a little longer, or so it won't be to the mo- to the minute. All right? Well, her mind does. <laughs> okay. Could we have a moment silence, please, and then a, a, an announcement? In stock of ourselves, any unfinished business questions or? Uh, share your experience of the practice, please. In your whole life, <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Is there any uh, difference between thoughts that come and go through the mind? Correct me if I leave anything out. And um, what would you call, let's say, deep depression or... Um, emotional states caused by uh, psychophysical or physical imbalance, biochemical imbalance, something like that? Yes. I'm glad you added the word relatively. Yeah. Uh, From the point of view of the practice, they're all the same in one sense. They're the same in that they arise and pass away and they lack a certain solidity. That is, in a given moment, a thought, an emotion, an image, whatever mental production uh, occurs, it just occurs. It comes into existence independent of what caused it. After all, what causes thoughts? They're also like secretions, you know? Uh, Just like digestive juices, the brain secretes these thoughts. I don't know where they why I'm thinking what I'm thinking, but there it comes, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. So some of what you're referring to may be 
uh, caused by recognizable conditions that can be uh, now diagnosed and so forth, and even treated chemically or herbally. Have to put that, put that in my bias. Um, independent of the cause, all of them are conditions. You see, you have to understand that the whole point of this practice is to take us to the unconditioned. Is there anything that isn't born and doesn't die? It doesn't die because it was never born. Uh, and of course, whether you call that, whatever you call that, different traditions call it something, different name, have different names for it, but the answer is yes. So this is, but you, in this particular path, you come to the unconditioned through intimate knowledge of the conditions. It's like you come to the clear blue sky. It's just a rough analogy. Don't take me too literally, but it, I think it has some validity. You come to the clear blue sky by really getting to know all the different kinds of clouds that visit you. And then as you do, you see that they're clouds. Uh, then that they, if you watch a cloud sometime, and you, you can watch it uh, come into existence and then hover, if you have patience, watch it. You'll see it start to disc- decompose, and <clears throat> at a certain point, it's not there anymore. Its shape or its shape will change so dramatically, its color and so forth. So, what is being said here that all conditions are cloud-like? They're ephemeral. They're transient. And as you begin to see that, including what you mentioned, your attachment to those conditions is lessened, weakened. And with practice, even completely, you can completely let go of attachment to those conditions. Once you let, the problem is not the conditions from this point of view. It's that we're very, uh, we're either repelled by what's happening to us or grasping on to and clinging to what's happening to us. They're both the same from this point of view. Okay. But, I've had some experience because a a fair number of people at our center in Cambridge uh, have clinical depression. And uh, the question is, for example, can meditation help? Can you um, get off drugs and solve the whole thing with meditation? I would say it's an individual matter. I have seen at least two cases, it's not many, but it's two that I've observed where people started to do this practice, but then you have to really do this practice. You can't just uh, play with it. Uh, and they were, they were doing it, and gradually, with the uh, approval of a sympathetic physician, uh, cutting the dosage down gradually, little by little by little by little, uh, until finally uh, not taking uh, the chemical at all, uh, in some cases, there are people taking very low dosages and still practicing. But there also are people who have very, very deep depression and who can't really do what I'm saying. It's just pragmatic. It's not a matter of theory. Uh, it's not a matter of intelligence. It's not, it, often, it's not even a matter of, of motivation. That is, the condition uh, often would probably, at least for a time, be better treated either... Uh, physically, or in psychotherapy, where there can be a a very focused and prolonged uh, examination and inquiry and dialogue about and investigation into it. Sometimes it can work both together. Many people uh, at IMS, 
another place that I teach at in Cambridge, uh, are working with therapists as well as in meditation, and it's not a problem. It can be a problem, especially if the meditation teacher is condescending about therapy, or the therapist uh, doesn't understand what meditation is and uh, just dismisses it or is even hostile towards it. Those, that's starting to be a thing of the past. It was a tremendous, no one knew what it was, so of course, they're all, I think people are becoming more sensible now. So I think it's an individual matter. Um, now, as to your, does that, w w w okay. Uh, so the answer is under some conditions, yes. Things can be done on other conditions. Uh, it can be better to not meditate just yet and do other forms and maybe come to meditation a little bit later. And I think it has to, it's very much uh, the individual circumstance that will determine that. Um, but let's get back to your first statement, which is very, very important, that you've discovered uh, how restless your mind is. I'm giving it a more complimentary term. What term did you use? In your life? Yes. Uh, I have a hunch you have. I'm pretty sure you have. But um, whether you know it or not, and I'm, I'm not just trying to make you feel good, you've already, uh, you have in some, some, we're doing shamatha meditation or samadhi practice. You've already attained the first attainment. You might say, well, what in the world kind of an attainment could it be after hearing what you just said? Uh, the different traditions have different ways of talking about this same process. Vipassana exists in the Tibetan tradition. It exists in Zen. It's called serene reflection in Zen. So uh, Vipassana is a generic term in a way for the Buddhist teaching. What you're getting is shamatha vipassana, especially out of the Theravadan tradition, which is where most of my training comes from. Okay. This level of attainment is called attaining the cascading mind. And what that means is, you sit down and you try to tame your mind, or just to look at it, and here it's the breath we're beginning to do that with, and it's incredibly wild, uh, restless, and I don't have to, you, you understand. Now, what you're seeing is, it's not that meditation produced this, it's that because you're sitting down and stopping to take a look, you're noticing the nature of your mind which has been with you all your life, or let's say most of your life. And so it's called an attainment because you're seeing your predicament. You've attained a clear sense of, of uh, the nature of your mind. Now, what that is implying is that most human beings have the same mind, and they're running around on the planet and not knowing it and doing all kinds of things with that mind, and take a look at the planet. So, but, but it's, here's the next step, which is very much, I think, to your question. When you see that you, you, the cascading mind, it's like a waterfall, just emotions and thoughts and blah, blah, endless chattering. And, uh, there's a fork in the road, and it's very important for you at this point uh, to make the right turn. Because when you see the nature of how discordant the mind is and how unsatisfactory in many ways the mind is, uh, you can feel discouraged, disappointed, get off the path, and just make the best of it with the means that you already have. You know, and just, okay, this is not for me. Okay. 
or the other fourth turn in the road is to recognize, in both cases you recognize how, how uh, wild the mind is, but in the second one it's not an occasion for discouragement or despair because help is available. Uh, there are methods and forms and people who have been and are available for thousands of years who know what to do, how to help come out of that. And so it's sort of the cavalry is coming, you know, um, but of course you have to be willing to do your share. Uh, you know, pray to God, but tie up your camel at night, too. Uh, so I vote that you take the second fork in the road. Uh, first of all, you're, are you very new to this? Yeah. Yes. Okay, let that, uh, that's a good intention, let it grow naturally. Uh, but continuity is important. If it's very sporadic, it's a little bit like, this is an ancient image that uh, is not too far off the mark, really. It's like if you want fire, you can rub two pieces of wood together. But if you start rubbing and say, I think I'll take a break, and uh, <laughs> then you come back, and it's not that you can pick up where you left off. So there's a certain momentum, and that's part of why I... Um, I'm really happy that they did honor our request to not have a shorter day and also to have visitors, because that would change things. Uh, even on a small retreat like this, there's a momentum that we're developing together. And if you interrupt that, then you lose some ground. That's part of the reason for the silence, is to not leak energy, if you want to do that. Uh, so, um, discouraged is just a mind state. It's a thought. I feel discouraged. Uh, more generally, it's called doubt. And it's important that I... <clears throat> I'm using your question for all of us because I'm sure to some degree we all know what you're talking about. Um, when you begin to meditate, uh, it turns out that our mind today is not so different from the ancient mind. If you read uh, very, very ancient texts, thousands of years old, uh, and you sit down and you try to follow your breath or to um, steady the mind in some way, whether it's breathing or some other object, typically what everyone finds is that either the mind is in a state of wanting. I want this, I must have that, anything, food, sex, company, uh, better weather. You know, the mind's capacity to want is endless. Uh, or the mind is averse, angry, has a lot of ill will. Why don't they know that? Why don't they know? just annoyed with everything? So it's either grasping after or pushing away or trying to get away from, or it's restless and has uh, uh, just fidgeting all the time. And uh, the body is always changing, the mind is always changing, conditions are always changing. And if we're not comfortable with that or we haven't learned how to flow with the changes, we're going to be restless because life is restless in a sense, if you look around, there's constantly things happening. Uh, or the mind is dull and sleepy. We all know that one too. And the final one, which is frankly the most dangerous one, that's why I'm taking so much time, which is called doubt. Okay, so these mind states come up for everyone, and as I've said it, can you recognize, have you been visited by any of them during our few days? Yeah, of course. Uh, in my own practice, when I read that this was going on, 
even if during the time of the Buddha and that uh, yogis at that time reported the same thing, I found it very reassuring and it helped me a lot. Uh, oh, okay, it's a human thing, it's not a Larry thing, or whatever your name is, sorry. Uh, doubt is so uh, vital because it can be fatal, fatal from the point of view of the path, uh, because doubt saps your energy. If you, uh, and the doubt is typically you doubt the teaching, the practice. You might say, well, it's from ancient India. How could that be helpful now? This is 19. We're going into the 21st century. Give me a break. This is all for grandma and grandpa. You know, it's, uh, so you doubt the teaching or, the, or it's from another culture. It's not relevant for me. Or the teacher. We know he's from Brooklyn. What is he? Who does he think he is? You know, just <laughs> speaking as if he knows something and like he's some big Asian teacher. But the most dangerous doubt, of course, is doubting yourself. Now, so it's like a tapeworm, because if you doubt, then that saps your energy. So now all of these, uh, the neediness of the mind, the aversive, aversive tendency in the mind, the tendency to get restless or dull and to doubt things, they all come and go. They're mind states. They're not self. They occur, they operate, and then they're gone. They occur. They so in a given moment, you felt what you just reported, discouraged. But if you look at it carefully, you'll see it happened in a particular moment. A kind of a conclusion, a notion came up in the mind, and a feeling, you know, like, I feel really discouraged. Okay, that is no reason to end practice. As you, that is the practice. So you take a look at it. You, you examine it. You examine the discouraged mind, or the doubting mind, as it's more generally referred to. Uh, and you see it's, some, it's a mind state. It isn't always there. You don't always doubt yourself, or you wouldn't be able to get on with living. You're not always restless. You're not always dull. You're not always grasping, etc. These all are visitors. They come and go, come and go, come and go. But as we begin to see the mind, we begin to see that and learn that about our mind, and it's very helpful to see that pattern. Then we can let them visit, we can meet them with mindfulness, and as you know, the retreat more and more is moving in that direction. And as our mind becomes steadier through mindful breathing, through the walking, and through attempting to be mindful throughout the day, um, it becomes less problematic. So that the doubting mind is just a doubting mind. It doesn't have to be a problem. Oh, here comes doubt. It's a particular mind state. And poor thing, it is totally humorless, right? Uh, and the only thing it knows how to do is whine. It goes through life. That's all that mind state knows how to do. You have to have some compassion for it. Right. Okay. Anything else? Please. Mm-hmm. I'll let you make the choice. You see, the advantage of staying with one object is that cuts down on the restlessness. Um, the disadvantage of, 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 of switching objects at this point in the practice is that can become, I'm not saying it is for you, uh, a rather refined, uh, very, a refined kind of restlessness. 
that is, oh, it's very clear here, so I'll stay here. Next sitting, oh, it's down here, I think I'll go down here. Oh, now it's over here. And so your mind is hopping around, always looking for the perfect breath. You know, uh, and it's going to keep changing. So there is some value to the stick to uh, also, you're getting to. Why do you why do you come down there? Because it's more vivid, right? More vivid. Yeah. Is that why you switch? I didn't switch, but I questioned. Oh, yeah. But why would you consider switching? Is it more vivid? Yes. Right. There's an advantage. Think of it this way. This isn't forever, because there is a time where you can just sit openly and just be with the breath wherever it is. But for right now, what I think is best is what I'm saying. Uh, but think of the advantages of this. Um, if you're willing to be with the breathing uh, in the different ways in which the breathing appears, sometimes it's vivid, sometimes it's not, right? Sometimes it's a great joy to breathe, at other times it isn't. But what that is doing, the breath in a sense is teaching us, it's giving us the opportunity for mindfulness to become very refined. Because let's say here, the breath is over here and mindfulness is keeping up with it in, out, in, out, then it drops down to here, but the mindfulness is up here. In order to stay, maintain continuity, it's got to meet the breath where it is. So it learns how to be alert to a, a hardly available uh, sense of breathing. So it's very, it can be, if used with the right attitude, very good training for the mind to have to learn how it can be attentive to any kind of breath, not be dependent on a vivid breath. Let me give you a dramatic example. I worked with one person who had the last stages of emphysema. He died, very, very motivated. For him, a deep breath, you know, because sometimes when we have more time, we'll go into the qualities of breathing. A deep breath would be about here, the collarbone. A shallow breath would be about up here. Uh, tremendous handicap, of course, and pain. But he was so motivated that he went very, very deeply anyway. There wasn't a whole lot of breath for him to work with. But the motivation was so powerful that it didn't seem to matter. Yeah. Okay. Please. Hmm. No, of course not. But if you'll see that you can use all of life eventually. But we're taking the breath as a kind of training. Uh, here's, here's the logic of it. Out of all the different things that you could pick to calm yourself, we're just taking one. It's a good one, but it's not the only one. Um, can you put your attention there and keep it there, not as an act of will, but learn how to do that so that you, your mind is now much more under your control. It's very graceful. It's not fierce or held there by force at all. Uh, so more generally, can you learn to put your attention where you want to put it and to keep it there for as long as you want to do that? Can you see what an advantage that would be in life, just in general? That means your mind can be much more of a help for you, a servant to help you, uh, if attention is called for in a particular place and time, that you're, you're, you can do that. But we're starting off with just one object because, as, you, as we all see, we're being interrupted all over the place. And so the training, that's fine, that's the training. The training is, can we stay with the breath in the midst of all these distractions that we're talking about? 
Okay, I think we ought to do a bit of sitting. Uh, take a break, though, I think. Stand up first. The sittings, unless I say otherwise, will be roughly half an hour, give or take a few minutes. It won't be, don't worry about it. But you don't have to, uh, we're not going to put up schedules and things like that. If it's going to be longer, I will tell you. If it's shorter, I won't. I mean, if I know it, I'll tell you. But I, sometimes I just, I'm watching you, essentially, and going a little bit beyond your capacity, not too much. Some of you are confused why I do this, put my thumb up and sometimes down. It's just a signal to tape it or not to tape it. It's for you. I mean, if those of you who want the tapes, uh, I'm drowning in tapes. I don't need this. <laughs> okay. Any questions or comments about the practice, please? Well, it's a good analogy. No, because you're the fly. Uh, right. Yeah. But it's over, you see. You'll get new physical pain. Don't worry about it. Um, so what do you learn from this? What, what is... Uh, you're, you're right, the mind is shameless, right? Just anything can turn up, anything and everything. And as you start to listen, uh, you'll be amazed at what comes up. Um, is there any wisdom that comes out of seeing this, in the, you know, aside from what you've described? Something that's helpful for you. Yes. Exactly. So if you, if you keep doing this, uh, it's going to get clearer. Um, 
First of all, you're going to see the uncertainty of everything. You, you, you listed three days all different, but even three hours will be different if you look very, very carefully. And we're moving into this. It's very, in this particular tradition, uh, everyone understands impermanence. Uh, it's not particularly a, a Buddhist property of the Buddhists. I mean, it's been thought about, written about, philosophized about, poetry, everything. For, as far as everything we know, everyone understands that things are impermanent. What the Buddha added that is somewhat unique, perhaps very unique, unique, um, is it's one thing to see whole civilizations have come. Historical periods have come and gone, see the weather change, seasons change, empires, you know, we're, we're surrounded by it. Uh, this, it turns out, doesn't seem to have much transformative power. Otherwise, historians would all be quite enlightened. Because they're, they're, that's their stock and trade. They're studying that all the time. So what was added is uh, seeing the law of impermanence at work in you. That's where it seems to make a very big difference. It's okay, oh, Egypt is gone and ancient Peru is... But how about ancient you? <laughs> And so things change when you turn the lens around and you start to examine at whatever level. If it's the body, you can begin to see that the body is changing from moment to moment. The f more fine-grained your attention is, the more refined your noticing is, the more you see that there are just pulsations of sensations that are coming and going at a very rapid rate. Uh, at a more coarse level, they're pleasant, unpleasant, and so forth. If you look to the mind, well, you just gave us enough. The mind is in constant flux. Uh, and it has a license to say whatever it wants, to be inconsistent, contradictory, all the things you mentioned and even more. And so somehow as we begin to see this law of impermanence at work on ourselves, um, the deeper, for example, your calm and concentration, the deeper the insight into that law of impermanence. For example, probably you, you all understand what I said already. Here's, um, here's part of the value of, why, uh, of a concentrated mind. When the mind develops samadhi, or a kind of a steadiness, you see into, let's say, impermanence, but you see into it at a depth that's not possible. It's like having an electronic microscope where you didn't have one before, or you didn't even have prescription glasses. I can't see, I just see blurred forms right now. Um, not only is the seeing deeper, but the implications or the consequences of what you're seeing go deeper into the heart. So you start the, the fact that everything that arises passes away. Uh, starts to, uh, you can't force yourself to squeeze significance from it. But as you become more sensitive, more quiet, the implications of that law, of that truth, of that fact, uh, become more and more and more evident, and that's what has tremendous transformative power. It's not just bad news to see that everything is impermanent. It isn't. It's news. It's true. What we do with it will determine the rest, how we learn to live in accordance with that law. Because whether we learn to or not, the law keeps operating. It's not going to be repealed. It doesn't look like it. So either we change and learn how to live in harmony um, to enter into communion with this law of change, or it's a bumpy ride. So that some of so wisdom can be learned from anything. 
Wisdom is um, all day long. Uh, the Dharma, which is the Buddhist term for the way things are or the natural lawfulness of it all. Or sometimes it's used more specifically for a teacher like the Buddha's Dharma. In other words, the Buddha's particular teaching about the way things are. Um, that's what we're, that's our, the content of what we're doing. And calming the mind and concentrating it is making the mind fit so it can do this kind of work. So it can really see. Uh, if we were to just from day one just say, well, just watch everything arise and pass away without any help to calm down and concentrate, uh, by and large, it's not too fruitful. If you're very determined, eventually you will get concentrated out of, out of that. Uh, but by and large, what will happen is, based on, the, on people that uh, have done it, and myself and seen it, you just start psychologizing and thinking about it. Whereas what is transformative is this clear seeing. It's not really thought, although we use thought a lot to kind of bring us into it. So when you, ref let's say you see this, one thing you can reflect on, oh, look at that. My mind has been different, different in three straight, each day has been very different. One step further is to understand how everything is uncertain. Um, this is not optimistic or pessimistic, it's just true. Uh, and as you start to reflect on that law, which is just an expression of impermanence, that things are impermanent, we don't quite know how this impermanence will express itself from moment to moment. So we're beginning to enter into the realm of wisdom. Okay, anything else on your mind? Please. Yes. Um, let me use your question to bring us all into this in a somewhat broader way. When we first begin, we're, we're with the breath, and it's quite a challenge just to be with the breath. And the mind is babbling on, the body is screaming out, sounds are pouring in from the outside, and we're uh, taken off the breath very, very often. So we're hardly with the breath. We, don't, we can't even find the nostrils sometimes. Okay. As you start to practice, little by little, the mind quiets down and your capacity to sustain attention on the breathing becomes more continuous. Now, while you're doing that, as you're more able to do that, the mind becomes more absorbed, becomes more concentrated, what you're saying. Now, while you're doing that, <clears throat> other things, the world doesn't stop. And so, as long as you're attending to the breath, you will be hearing thoughts, sounds, etc., bodily conditions, and so forth. The whole art uh, is to stay with the breathing. So in that sense, at that moment, the breath is in the foreground, but you're aware, a corner of the mind knows what's happening. Okay. Uh, and then, of course, at times, we lose the breath altogether, and what was in the background, some, some element of the background is seized upon, a thought, a feeling, a sound, anything. And suddenly we're off and running, and we're not with the breath anymore, so we come back. As you keep going, uh, you, don't have to, you don't need a special technique. It's just everything that you described is a more subtle background now. 
And so it's just, it's just completely um, come to rest in the breathing. And that enables you to go uh, deeper into yourself, really. Uh, did you feel some calm as you got more concentrated? Missing about what? Of the breath? Yes and no. That is, uh, it's yes, but right now the essence of this practice, shamatha, is sticking to the breathing. Yes, and what comes out of that is you're starting to get to know the realm of breathing. If you don't pay attention to the breath, most of us haven't. Uh, you don't know it too well, you know it in a crude way. As you start to live with the breathing, you become more familiar with it, more intimate with it. And um, you begin to see the, the subtle qualities of breathing. Sometimes it's very refined, sometimes it's rather coarse. Sometimes it's very deep, sometimes it's shallow, sometimes it's, it's uh, moving so slowly and smoothly, other times very bumpy and jagged, and even qualities that we don't have words for. Uh, so you're getting to know the world of the breath. But in this particular contemplation where, you're, where concentration is featured, the main thing is are you staying with the breath in whatever form it is? Okay, now as you do that, and all these other things are happening around you, but I still need to know, did you feel some peace and calm? Okay, good. Okay. So what starts to happen is, uh, this is lawful. It's, it's happened to countless people like ourselves. As you go deeper into the breathing, the mind becomes quieter and quieter. It also is experienced as being more spacious. Uh, thought can come to a halt altogether for extended periods of time. Uh, there's a tremendous feeling of being refreshed, rejuvenated. Uh, it doesn't last forever. You come out of it. And it's a somewhat different world, depending on how quiet the mind has been. In other words, silence has power. Don't underestimate. In fact, the direction we're moving in is silence. Outer silence is relatively easy to arrange. That's what we're trying to do here. That's a prelude to inner silence. You can have uh, total required silence here for, for months. Inside, it can be a, uh, like a circus. Okay. But that gets quieter, and the direction of the practice is we come into a, a realm which the word stillness or silence may sound not so impressive to you. But finally, no words will do it. Uh, but there's, silence has tremendous power and intelligence and love. Finally, meditation is the flowering of love, but it's not cultivated love. It's not a love that you kind of train yourself into. It's intrinsic. It just flows from you. And all of us have it. So you don't need a special technique. Just keep doing what you're doing. Relax into it. Uh, don't be bothered by all the different stirrings that are surrounding the breath. Let the breath take all kinds of different forms. That's fine. Just be with the particular one that's there. And the rest will take care of itself. Yeah. My question is, is when I um, stay with the breath, and as I come further since Monday, the bombarding thoughts don't bombard now, they just kind of gently float around. And Good. Go, okay, big, you know. mm -hmm. And I stay with the breath. 
However, when you talk about attentiveness, my background, to me, attentive, attentiveness is a hyper-acute state. I don't feel that I'm in a hyper-acute state, or what I would have in the past experienced a hyper-acute state, so I'm wondering, am I truly being attentive, even though I'm not responding? You're being as attentive as you can be in that moment. The world of attention has infinite refinement to it. So you're right. But we're not straining to be attentive. It's not... You have to... Yeah, the word hyper is what I'm responding to. Effort is needed in this practice, but it's right effort. Okay. Let me uh, use the classical teachings of the Buddha to help us with this. We've selected an object to attend to, the breathing. Okay. So that we... I assume you've agreed upon that, at least temporarily for these four or five days. We'll be doing other things, but for right now, the breath. So, it takes some effort to take the mind to the breath. It's not going to just drop from the sky. Now, if that effort is, too, is forced, then it will create tension. And here you are uh, developing calm, but you're striving. No calm can come from that because there's too much effort. Then again, if you're very casual and lackadaisical, it will go nowhere either. So you have to find that way right in between. The Buddha, during the time of the Buddha, there was one yogi who was very, very devoted to his practice but getting nowhere. And finally he was uh, uh, discouraged and came to the Buddha and described it. And the Buddha asked him, what was your occupation before you became a practitioner? Uh, and he said, I was a musician. I played a stringed instrument. So the Buddha said, uh, would you get good music? What would happen if you made the strings too tight? He said, well, then they snap. You don't get good music. He said, and how about if they're limp? He said, then of course you don't get music. So how do you get good music? He said, just perfect, not too tight, not too loose. And he said, you've been working too hard. And he was very, very devoted, but it was feverish. Okay. So we have to find that balance of effort. Right effort is not something you establish forever. In other words, in each moment you kind of establish it for that moment, because it depends on your overall energy level, health that you're in, all kinds of conditions, some of which we're not aware of, um, and how concentrated you are that day. But you can feel when you're off. If it's too much, there's straining and tension, and the body will tell you. If it's too much, if it's not enough, that's pretty easy too. So you get to know it from moment to moment. You can feel you're going too much you have to loosen your strings a little bit. And other times you have to tighten them up a little bit. And little by little you find what right effort is. So now we've come to the breathing. It takes some effort to kind of um, drive the breath over there. Now you're on the nostrils and the breath. Mindfulness is what is noticing, what is feeling the, the sensations of the breathing. What we're calling samadhi or concentration is what keeps the mindfulness there. It's a slightly different quality. It's one thing to notice something. It's another thing to be able to sustain that noticing. So there's a certain strength of mind. The samadhi accompanies the mindfulness and enables it to stay with the object. You see, so we're developing both, really. We're noticing the object and we're learning how to, for the mind, the mind gradually strengthens itself so it's strong enough to stay with whatever you've decided to stay with. So now the mind is uh, been brought to the object, it's, it's noticing it, it's being held there by the strength of your samadhi, and then out of that can grow insight, wisdom. You can't really practice insight, it's a misnomer. 
you can practice mindfulness, and insights gr- they come or they don't. Insights are something. The insights I'm talking about are intuitive. So we're laying the conditions for an insight to happen. For insight, so that once the mind is able to land on an object, to stay with it, and to see it clearly, you begin to see more deeply the nature of that object. And ah, oh, it's impermanent. You know, you see it, uh, or you see. Um, well, there are many things to see, but that's as far as I like to go now. But do you, okay, so now the quality of attention, that, that gets refined. I've been at this probably longer than you, and the refinement is ongoing. I assume it will be for the rest of my life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Feels permanent. To who? To me. Exactly. I know, I'm sorry, over your head, but it's all right. <laughs> um, perm- uh, you feel discouraged. No, I, 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 I heard you. Okay, so uh, to begin with, though, that's where we, we're back to the um, cascading mind. Remember this morning? Okay, so you've attained it now, too. So at least two people will give you a little certificate. It's an attainment. You know that your mind is cluttered, right? Most of the human race doesn't know that. You do. Okay, but look, you see, that's a gloss, G-L-O-S-S, or you're just slapping the term impermanence on it. But if you look at even what you're calling clutter, okay, you'll see that that's going through changing. It's, it changes. It's dynamic and alive. It's not just frozen. You're alive. So it's in that sense that I mean it's impermanent. Assuming you never practiced and you're, you had a cluttered mind for the rest of your life, uh, I'm not wishing that on you. <laughs> okay. um, it still would be impermanent because the ways in which the mind is cluttering itself up would be changing from moment to moment. As you look carefully, you'll see that it, it isn't frozen. It's not a solid thing. Do you see how I'm using the term impermanent? That's a concept on your, you've fashioned a concept permanent out of all this. That's just an idea. But, and you got discouraged. You use, you use the word discouraged? Dis, yeah. Okay, when, that, when the moment, let's start moving into wisdom practice a little bit. Uh, even though you can't practice wisdom, <laughs> we'll try to. Our, we, that enable you to use the word discouraged. Okay. But if you watch that energy of discouragement, you'll see that it's impermanent that it arises, oh, oh, I can't do this, this is hopeless, this is beyond my capacity, how can anyone do this? this is, and then it starts to thin out and it's gone. Then something else will come. So once you see the impermanent of that mind state of, of uh, discouragement, then it starts to lose power. It has power because you've identified it with it. That's why I asked you who. It means you've made it, I'm discouraged. Once you ad- identify with that mind state. It's just a state that visits. It comes and it goes. If you attach to it, then you, you, you may discouraged out of it. Then you will feel discouraged and that will spread. I don't know if I'm... You have a funny look on your face. What? Am I, do you understand my words?
perceive, I think that I'm perceiving permanent as another, it's another colored thought, but it gets in there. And I think that's why I become afraid and doubtful is that I do, like, on, on Monday I was in a lot of pain, and I thought, this is never going to go away. Yes, I understand what you're saying. And now today I'm encountering my clutter and I'm going, this is never going to go away. Yes. I am, that, my answer is the same. I'm sorry. I wish I could give you a better answer. You see, but what, from my point of view, what I hear you doing is you've made up an idea, a clutter, about the, what's happening. All that's happening is what's happening. And you've, you've concluded, clutter, this is never going to go away. You can use the word permanent for that if you like, but what I'm saying is even permanent is, is a concept. And if you look at what you're talking about, not that idea that you made up about it, you'll see that there's been a lot of change that's gone on. And it's, all of it has had a certain quality which enables you to label it and say, clutter. No good. You, I, yeah. you see, you're on to big stuff because in the Buddhist teaching of, of not-self, anatta, which is a very difficult idea to grasp for most of us for years. What is being said is that we create a notion of there is a permanent self. And it's even more convincing than your clutter. Uh, and people hate the idea or think it's insane or it just drives, especially intellectual people, have all kinds of logical th ways that this can't be, then who gets enlightened, who's suffering? Okay. But what is, what is being said is that as you start to investigate what we know of as being me, you'll see that that too is made up of a, it's a process. It's not a thing. And it's a process that is in, uh, inconsistent, contradictory, and constantly changing. It's just thoughts, ideas, images, etc., coming and going. But in order to see that, this is not a philosophic debate. This is something you either see or you don't see. It's not a belief. This is not a new ideology. That is, yes, I believe in no self. I'm a Buddhist. Great. You'll just, it's, you, might, you could be anything else. It's, it's not important whether you agree with me or disagree with me. What is important is are you willing to investigate? Are you willing to look into your own mind and see, and see is clutter uh, permanent? Uh, the word clutter, if you use that same word and paste it on, just like I'd use the word, what do you mean? I was Larry when I was born. I was Larry when I was a teenager. I was Larry. I'm always Larry. I'm always clutter. I'm using, trying to make an analogy. Yes, but that's like uh, a name tag. That's all it is. And to some degree helpful, but very, very limited. Whereas if you look at the reality, there's a flow, non-stop process. Even your clutter has been moving along like a river. That's all I'm saying. Okay, now, discouragement is part of the clutter. The conclusion. You know, in other words, the mind is a certain way. It's this way. And suddenly, out of that... Uh, comes another phrase, not just clutter, but I'm discouraged and a feeling. Okay, and it's as if that's on the bank watching the river flowing by, but the truth is that's part of the river. There is no bank. Finally, it's just the thinking process unfolding. Okay, please.
It, it is, pardon? Yes, no, I don't mean to demean intellectual understanding. If I convey that, I apologize. That's not correct. For example, in this scheme, there's what is called right understanding. To begin with, it's intellectual. We have to start that way. So it's a set of ideas. It's the same as any other scheme that you've ever heard. It's, it's theoretical, doctrinal. It's the first step. This is a short way. Um, and then I'd like for us to have a very brief sitting before we go to lunch. I don't want to load you up with too much baggage, but uh, do it anyway. Well, you know I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> it's just a way of speaking. The path, the Buddhist, this path is co sometimes called the Eightfold Path. So there are eight, um, in a sense, think of a strong, a cable that has eight, eight twines, all intertwined. They're all interrelated. The first one is right understanding. So it's number one. And that's what we're doing right now. We're working with right understanding. I'm trying to the best of my ability spin out some words that are about the reality that we're approaching and, and what its significance is and how it might be helpful to understand it this way. So that's the first noble truth, right understanding. It begins in a conceptual way, but then it doesn't end there, because then the others are all practice type things. Do this, do that, do this, and the other seven. And as you begin to do that, then what started out as a concept starts to bear fruit. You start to see it directly. When I mean intuitive, I don't mean... Um, what I mean is direct seeing, very, very clear seeing, unmediated by thought. When the mind is clear, it sees what's going on. So that right now, it's what I was saying before, we already know everything is impermanent, but we don't know it at a deep enough level. And so uh, when you see it more clearly, not the idea that everything is impermanent, although we, have to, we start there, so one way of introducing right understanding is to introduce the idea that everything is impermanent. But it's not meant to end there. That idea is something that you have to experientially confirm for yourself very, very deeply. Otherwise, it won't help you. We'll get into how it can help liberate you. Uh, okay. What I'd like to do is, um, we only have a few moments, a very brief sitting, begin to introduce uh, we're going to start widening our world a little bit. For those of you who are time conscious, it's only about seven minutes, seven and a half minutes. I know you're already knees are screaming and etc. So let's be heroic for seven minutes. And close your eyes or however you've been practicing and come to the breathing again. Settle into the breath. And as you're breathing, begin to widen the scope of your attention 
You're not dropping the breathing, but you're loosening your hold over the breath so that as you're breathing, you're also listening to sound. So the breath is a kind of uh, anchor or friend, or you can call it a background activity, but practice listening. Really just listen. Now, when you do that, what you're hearing will be sounds. Hear one? Just one? Now, the, the hearing of that sound is just chuk, whatever that was. Then the mind, will, my mind, said shovel. That's not sound. That's the mind interpreting the sound. So just listen to the sound. And if there's no sound, listen to silence. The breath is always there, so it doesn't take really very much special effort. So let's sit and breathe and listen for just about five minutes or so. Please assume a meditative posture, as we've been doing for a number of days now. Scanning the body to see if there's any tension. Checking to see any particular mood that we may be beginning this afternoon's practice with. Noticing the condition of the body, its comfort or discomfort. The kind of energy we're bringing, if unexamined, can sometimes become a kind of filter, which interferes with the, the freshness of the mind. So we just take stock of ourselves, just very briefly. If you wish, taking a few deep breaths. And then once again, turning to the breathing. For a number of days now, the breath has been an exclusive object of attention. Whenever our mind has wandered from the breathing, we've simply come back time and time again. This first part of the practice, as you know, called shamatha, where we uh, 
by taking just one object out of all the different kinds of things we could attend to, we only pick one, pick the breath, and letting go of everything else, coming back to it time and time again, helps calm and unify the mind, helps it to settle down, to become peaceful, and to have a certain stability or concentration. Mainly what we've been interested in is the capacity of the mind to stick to the breathing. And we see it taken away many times. We come back gently, without blame, over and over. And little by little, the mind can learn to settle down. It can become extremely peaceful with all the benefits that peace bring with it. In this sitting, I'd like to begin to move into what is called insight or vipassana, so that very often, if you read books, you might see what we're doing called shamatha hyphen vipassana. The two practices really are coordinated. They work together the way the right and left hand would. Sometimes it's translated as serene reflection. First we learn how to calm down, enabling the mind to develop some degree of serenity and peace. But that isn't the end. We don't stop there. Taking whatever level, the level of calm and peace we have, we then use that to reflect reflect in the sense, in the same way that a mirror would reflect. And what's in front of the mirror in our case is the nature of the mind and the body, all of our senses. And then what the mind does to everything that happens to it. Let's continue where we left off this morning, very briefly, staying with the breath, and then introducing sound, if you recall. Let's do that once again. Sitting and breathing. One thing that you can notice and learn is that it doesn't take a huge amount of effort. The mind, as it already is, is capable of hearing sound. It's not that you have to strain. Please don't. So coming to rest in the breathing, in this method of anapanasati, the full awareness of breathing, we use the breath a lot, not only to concentrate the mind, but even when we begin to do insight work, the breath becomes a kind of, becomes a kind of anchor. helping us to more clearly experience all that is other than breath. So in this case, we're slowly enlarging the field of interest to include sound. And let the sounds come to you. 
So there isn't any strain of kind of perching or being poised to hear. If nothing comes to you, then listen to the silence. The breathing is ongoing. That's part of its value. It just naturally happens over and over again. So it's always there to help steady us, to help keep us in this moment, like a good and soothing friend. So for the next few minutes, please, we'll just sit and breathe and listen. sound that we're listening to is not what the mind makes up about sound. It's not shovel digging or bird chirping. That's the mind at work. Later on we'll be looking at the mind directly. We're listening to just pure raw sound. That's what we're listening to. If you were listening to a concert, it would be as if you threw away, if you could, everything you knew about the particular piece, all the memories you might have of having heard it before, and listening to it really fresh, and as if for the first time, as just pure sound. Now, of course, the mind will come in and tell you what you're listening to. That's all right. We're not going to set up a struggle. However, what we're contemplating is sound in and of itself. One of the things you can begin to notice, of course, is that each sound comes and goes. Back to our discussion on impermanence from this morning. Sound can be a very useful and rather easy way to begin to learn about the law of impermanence firsthand, directly. Even sounds that seem be the same sound staying. If you listen carefully, you'll see that it's an energy that's in movement. 
changing slightly, becoming deeper, slightly different tone and so forth. Many sounds just come and go, chirp, chirp. We can law, learn about the law of impermanence anywhere. The Buddha said it's like the taste of the ocean, which is always salty. The taste of reality is always change. Wherever you look, you see this law at work, arising and passing away. And in Vipassana practice, it's considered, and if any of you have practiced with it for a while, perhaps you've seen, it's a door into a rather profound understanding of the way things are. Very, very helpful in how to live. So we start humbly with just a bird's chirp. But it's the same law at work. a bit more. So far we're breathing. We're also allowing sound in. Let's extend the field of attention to include the body itself. Bodily sensations. Just have a sense of the body being there. We're not uh, moving through the body in any systematic way. This is one way to, to develop this uh, contemplation, the contemplation of sensation in the body or feeling, Vedana. But rather, just being open to bodily experience. And as you probably notice, from time to time, something in the body becomes prominent. Perhaps it's, if 
For me right now, it's slightly below the right knee. I just feel it there, and it, I wasn't looking for anything. It got me. It called my attention forth. And so I'm aware of that sensation. It's slightly unpleasant. And I'm experiencing that slightly unpleasant bodily feeling as I sit and breathe in and breathe out. So now what we're doing is we're beginning to open the set of instructions up so that although we still use the breath, we use it to stabilize ourselves, we're also quite receptive and open to sound. and to the language of the body. There'll be sensations in the body which, as you feel them, they're usually pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. So let's get a bit of practice watching this field as it expresses itself. The sensation I felt just below the knee is long gone. And there's a, a rather light feeling that's replaced it. All through the leg, in fact, rather pleasant. How is it for you? As you sit and breathe, What is the energy of the body like for you? And of course, similar to sound, these sensations in the body keep changing. Again, don't strain to discover this, but just notice if it comes to your attention that the sensations change. The pulsation arises and passes perhaps becomes more intense or less intense, shifts to a different part of the body, is gone altogether, comes back. Pleasant becomes unpleasant, unpleasant becomes pleasant, and perhaps neutral for quite a while, and then unpleasant or pleasant. Not thinking so much, but just being open to the life, the energy in the body as it expresses itself. All the while, Breathing in and breathing out.
please don't strain to find anything. Please don't strain to see impermanence. Just sit and breathe and allow sounds to come to you, allow bodily sensations to come to you, and just know them. If there's nothing there, then listen to silence. Sometimes the breath just quite naturally takes over and is prominent. Fine, then just be with breathing. Things are very flexible, open. More and more the instructions are inviting you to get to know the full range of your experience. Please remember that mindfulness is not for or against what it's mindful of. It's like a mirror. The mirror just reflects what's there. It's not for or against what you put in front of it. So mindfulness, or the, this quality of mind that we're developing, we'll, is learning how to bring an unbiased quality of attention, mode of attention to what's happening to us. Moreover, mindfulness has no thinking in it at all, just as a mirror that's not flawed reflects accurately what's in front of it. That's its job. That's its function.
sitting and breathing, listening, and feeling the life of the body as it expresses itself. Just a few minutes more, open, attentive. And in the few remaining moments we have, let's finish up as we began with just the simple breath. Just the simple in and out breath. We'll do some walking meditation now, about a half an hour as we've been doing. Are you sleepy or lethargic? Okay. Let's do our whole exercise then. One, two.
Okay, let's return to the breathing once again. Learning what the Buddha called Kayan Upasana, mindfulness of the body. In the particular sermon that the Buddha gave, where he refers to this in a very straightforward way, he says, become mindful of the body in the body, which sounds like a strange way of talking. Become mindful of the body in the body. What the Buddha meant by that is the raw sensations that express themselves in what we call the body. And it's an attempt to alert us to what is being pointed to is not an image of the body, it's not the body image. Some of you have had academic training in anatomy and physiology or in other ways are sophisticated about the body. The body in the body means that raw, direct perception that's free of anything that you've ever learned about the body or anything that you imagine the body to be. It's sort of the felt body from inside. Sometimes, at the beginning, it's hard to separate the two because we have so many pictures in our minds about our body, conclusions and so forth. This one is, this contemplation is attempting to return us to a much more naive, innocent, direct, intimate contact with bodily life, one that's not mediated by any concepts or notions or images whatsoever, just the isness of it. To contemplate the body in the body. During the sitting, I'd like for us to again get some more experience being mindful of the body, and I'm going to include the breath as well. The breath is part of the body. Let's take another look at the breath. I'm assuming that you're all with your breathing right now. We'll start off by looking very carefully at the breath. The same old breath we've been following for a number of days, hundreds and hundreds of times perhaps. For all I know, thousands.
we're going to look a little bit more carefully at the breathing. Sometimes the way we do this in interviews is to ask the person to describe what the breathing is like in the interview. Perhaps we'll even sit and meditate together. And at first the person is stumped and said, well, you know, I'm breathing in, I'm breathing out. It's a typical response. And then through questioning, we move attention a little bit closer to the qualities that each breath expresses. It turns out that the breath is a rather rich universe. As you get to know it, you'll see that. And to begin with, we see things like some breaths are long and some breaths are short, shallow. Right at this moment, relative to what you know of your own breathing, begin to see that, the length of the breath. Again, in the original teachings of the Buddha, at one point he says, breathing in a long breath, the yogi knows that he or she is breathing in a long breath. Breathing out a long breath, etc. Same with short breath. This kind of contemplation is designed to sharpen our capacity to see clearly. Also, it's the beginnings of a very early stage of investigation or inquiry. To look very carefully, often at obvious things, and to see them as if for the first time. And that's the attitude I would encourage you to bring to the breath this moment. Fresh, as if you've never observed one breath in your life. Just turn to it as if for the first time. And begin to notice the qualities, beginning with length. And as you examine the length of the breathing, perhaps in your mind you've concluded that the breath right now is deep or shallow. Remember, no judgment is implied. It's just a description. And if you've come up with some sense of the length of the breath, would you say it's the same for your in-breath as for your out-breath? In order to answer, you'll have to look carefully the in and out breath to see if there's any difference.